0: Hey, Rockheads, stop drawing the Taj Mahal with your turtle and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 562 with guests Llewellyn Falco and Lynn Langett, recorded live Monday, May 17, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint's 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.net controls with first class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.net web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who has a Facebook privacy tip for you, don't log on. Carl Franklin. (laughs)
1: Gotta
2: get enough points to Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard for your enjoyment. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. Mr. Campbell.
1: Yes, sir. Good to be home, huh?
2: Yeah, it's very good to be home. Hey, you know why assembler programmers ask to live in Atlantis? Why? Because it's below sea level. Oh, jeez. Killing me. <laughs> why, uh, why is SOA like teenage sex? Why? Well, everyone thinks everyone else is doing it. Everyone's talking about it all the time. Uh Almost no one is really doing it. (laughs) And the few who are doing it are doing it poorly. They're sure (laughs) it will be better next time and not practicing it safely. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well. Hey, let's get right into Better Know Framework. All right. So what do you got? You're not going to believe what I got, man. Oh, I'll believe Let's talk about the Windows Phone 7 API. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, somebody's been dabbling. Yeah, well, we got a system.device.location namespace.
1: Oh, okay. And this is specific to... Because there was location in .NET 4, but this is location specific to WinPhone 7. Yeah, system.device.
2: And this has got a civic address. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if this is an overlap with, with what's in the API. But I found it in the Windows Phone class library okay so uh, it's got a civic address which represents a location expressed as a civic address. I'm not sure what a civic address is. you probably know what that is
1: an un, it's, it's just like an uncivic address only different.
2: yeah, that's exactly what I thought. yeah there's a civic address resolver that attempts to attain the civic address for a geographical coordinate and I guess the civic address is you know street, whatever. Yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah, all that good stuff. You got the geo coordinate. I like geoposition of T, which represents a geographic position consisting of a location and a timestamp.
1: Huh. So that you can have a collection of them.
2: Yeah. That's Where was cool. I an
1: hour ago? I asked that question a lot.
2: So, you know, that's pretty good. And there's all sorts of things in the in the API that I noticed. There's a Microsoft.devices. Namespace and under that you've got network information, which will tell you uh, there's a network interface that tells you uh, what type of network interface you're on. And most of the time you don't care, but uh, you know if you want to know if you're on Wi-Fi or on a 3G, right? You know, you I don't know if you you haven't had this experience, but I have. I go to use my iPhone and I go to install an application, and it says you have to be using Wi-Fi to install this because it's kind of big, right? Yeah.
1: Well, and it'd be good. A well-behaved app would be sensitive to the fact that, hey, I'm about to haul a huge ton of bytes in 3G. That might be a little expensive and or slow.
2: How about Microsoft.devices.sensors? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's an accelerometer sensor. Right. And you can read it. It's so kind of cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. just good stuff in that phone.
2: Yeah, it's all good. Cool. All right, man. Who's talking to us?
1: I've got an email. I got some email catching up to do. You know, we were on the road That's right, yeah. I've got a few emails from back there, and uh, here's a great one that actually ties back to the launch event, if you can remember back that far. It says, hi, Richard and Carl. I was listening to episode 535, and I thought I would add my two cents to the value of the web platform installer, and more specifically, the SEO toolkit. SEO is search engine optimization, right? Right. I've been using the SEO Toolkit for a few months, and it's been a powerful tool in analyzing content for my customers prior to go-live deployment of their websites. It seems to catch most of my SEO mistakes and generates a nice, clean report for me to reference as I go back and make my edits for optimization. Aside from the obvious benefit of the toolkit, there's another reason to use the SEO Toolkit that I didn't hear Mark mention during the show. I also use the toolkit to examine competitor websites and analyze their content. The SEO toolkit will allow you to analyze any public site. You simply enter the URL, and the toolkit will spider the content and create a report for analysis. I find that the report is the most useful way to examine the content and keywords. Sometimes it's interesting to see how the site structure was designed. Hmm. I love the show and enjoyed meeting you both at Dev Connections in Las Vegas. Yep. Carl is a badass guitar player. Why, thank you. And Richard can tell parrot stories like no other. <laughs> That's the first time I think I'd ever told a parrot story in public, too. How about that? That one? was a
2: good one. That's funny.
1: Keep up the great work and party like the .NET rock stars you are on the road trip. Yeah, we did. Yeah.
2: Well, not really.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> we were you actually... know, when you do five shows a week... A can of tab is like the limit.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we we really didn't do much partying at all. It was all work. It it was
1: a lot of work. Yeah. question. Uh, And um, Drew, thanks so much for your email. We will send you a mug. Drew came up to me at the end of uh, our closing session at at Connections where we did the the, uh, 64-bit question. I did the parrot stories and all that stuff. And he said, hey, how do I get a mug? And I said, write us an email. Guess what he did? You can do it too. <laughs> Write us an email. Dot net rocks at franklins dot net.
2: Our guests today are Llewellyn Falco and Lynn Langett. Uh, Llewellyn learned to jump horses in the seventh grade while living in France. While studying drafting in high school, he started fire eating, sleight of hand magic, and once rode a unicycle six miles. After learning to juggle torches, he joined an acrobatics group in college, where he specialized on the trampoline and walking a slack rope and you'll you'll figure out what this has to do with net in a minute folks <laughs> he can calculate the cube root of any perfect cube under 1 million in his head as well as pick a standard lock he can rollerblade down a flight of stairs backwards are, are you kidding me you can do all I this do stuff it. holy crap hey you've never seen
1: that. yeah th- these are all standard tests for most developer conferences now right? <laughs>
2: Llewellyn studied Tai Chi for two years, can throw a knife at 20 feet and a playing card at 50. He has taught swing dancing and loves to salsa. (laughs) He's also an accomplished speed chess player. In the last year, he's been scuba diving over 20 times, become a guitar hero, and broke his personal record of paddle balling over 200 times. Llewellyn attributes his success to the large amount of caffeine he's consumed and enjoys computer programming in his spare time. Oh, there's the conf- There's the connection. <laughs> it's all about your spare time. <laughs> Llewellyn was also a ride along winner in the uh, Ride Along with Carl and Richard contest on the road trip.
3: Okay. Yeah, that actually should be in my bio now. I think it's one of my more famous things.
2: All right, let me tell you about Lynn Langett. What inspires someone from Fargo, North Dakota, to dream of becoming a United Nations translator? Love of words, of course. A self described language geek, Lynn is fascinated by languages and semantics. She understands that life rarely travels in a straight line, and her own career reflects this winding path. Lynn moved from a degree in linguistics to become a business executive and then launched her own software development training and consulting company. She's done production work with all versions of .NET, BizTalk, K2.NET, SharePoint, SQL Server, Analysis Services, InfoPath, MOM, and Active Directory, and holds an array of certifications, including MCT, MCSD, MCITP, MCSE, MCDBA, and MSF. Lynn is also the author of Smart Business Intelligence Solution with SQL Server 2008 from Microsoft Press and Foundations of SQL Server 2005 Business Intelligence from A-Press. In her spare time, Lynn gives back to the community by supporting children's education. Her current projects include work with the Mona Foundation in Redmond, Washington, and SmartCare in Lusaka, Zambia. Welcome, guys.
3: Thank you. Thanks.
2: Okay, those were a couple of the oddest bios I think we've uh,
4: seriously.
3: ever had. Seriously. <laughs> well, we're going to be some of the oddest guests I think you've had, too. I
1: oh, know. Before you can say anything more, you need to give me the cube of 93.
3: <laughs> of 93? 93. I- I'm pretty sure that's not a perfect cube.
2: Ah, that's oh, that's right. See, I've more qualifications. Perfect cube. Uh-huh. You didn't read
1: the bio, Richard. Ah, there you go. I think If you're going to know cubes, you might as well know cubes. I didn't know you were being so selective about your cubes. Oh, uh, no, I have to be selective. Oh, geez. Uh, Richard is uh,
2: <laughs> no longer impressed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Only
2: perfect cubes. Come on. Oh, anybody can do that. <laughs> anybody could do that. So, we're talking about programming with kids and, uh, and specifically technologies that help kids learn. Do kids need special technology to learn how to program?
4: Well, um, to, to give uh, the listeners a little bit of background about our work, um, as an evangelist with Microsoft, I do lots of stuff with women in tech and, and getting girls involved in tech. And so I've been working with a program called DigiGirls that is a global program with Microsoft for several years. And I found that there wasn't enough hands-on courseware that was interesting to the girls. And so I started working in that uh, effort to make better courseware, more interesting courseware.
3: I think that's actually the bigger problem, right? It's not that the technology is needs to be modified for the kids, but you can't – when when you teach to adults, they're, they have like – they've already shown that they're interested. They usually have a paycheck behind it. But when you teach the kids, things have to be a lot more fun. You need to spend more time on the courseware, not necessarily the technology.
4: So Llewellyn and I started working together about six months ago because he had been volunteering, teaching, programming to kids at a school and was working over the long term. And so what we did is we conducted a a series of live events to get a sense of what works with kids and what doesn't. So since January of this year, we've conducted 16 live events across the United States and Europe. And we found that, like Llewellyn said, you have to be thoughtful in the way the courseware is designed. Um, and we've come out of it with a, a set of courseware that um, we want to share with the listeners because um, we find that kids like it.
2: Now, this isn't DigiGirls. This is all for kids.
4: No. What, what happened is um, we expanded our work because DigiGirls is targeted at high school-aged girls. Okay. And it's specialized one-day events. And as Lola and I work together, we found that there was a greater need for um, more expanded courseware, and Lolan had the experience of having worked you know over the long term, kind of an after school kind of a program yeah and so we targeted it younger um the courseware that we produce is designed for kids as young as ten, and it's both boys and girls
2: okay so now so it's not a it's not really about the technologies it's about the way that kids learn and the kind of things i mean the the standard stereotype is that most kids who who have the IQ for computers are extremely ADD or ADHD or whatever you want to call it, you know, have trouble focusing. Is yeah. do, do you see that as a as a as a problem or do you see it as a challenge?
3: Neither. We find that a lot of the kids are interested in programming but like the stereotype of what you you would think would be a programmer, is because teaching programming is done in such a way, and and, and so rarely, that those are the people who filter up naturally to it. And when you teach teach more interestingly, you actually get a a much broader range of kids that are interested in it.
2: So what you're saying is that the kids that come out to your classes don't uh, tend to be more focused than your average kids? No, we
3: get just sort of average kids.
4: Yeah, we've taught um, a really broad variety of kids. We've taught everything from inner-city kids to, um, you know, very urban, affluent kids. kids. We've taught kids who don't have computers, kids who do have computers. And because of my other volunteer work in sub-Saharan Africa, we actually have two young girls that are taking the, this curriculum to their school in Africa. So um, we have other people now that are using our courseware. And so it's we're finding that we seem to have hit upon an approach that interests more kids. And one of the reasons that we did this is because we don't see a consistent effort in the schools to teach any kind of programming. And it's really concerning to us as programmers because we see this, you know, people can take it in college or maybe in an advanced placement class late in high school. But the time to really start learning programming, we think, is when you're younger. And we really just didn't see anything available. Define so younger. 10, 10 yeah. or so. Yeah, so we're, we're putting this under the umbrella of Teaching Kids Programming, and we actually created a, a kind of a, a, a website to, for people who are interested in learning more about this. It's just www.teachingkidsprogramming.org, where we're putting all of our courseware and samples, because what we're finding is that this stuff that we're creating is pretty reusable. We've got volunteers, mostly developers, from around the United States and some in Europe and a couple in Africa, that are reusing our stuff in their schools. It's really exciting for us.
2: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret, though, that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight Analytics Framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem. But what's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight analytics framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. You can read details and download the handlers at Telerik.com Silverlight. And, hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. So explain to us, if you can, uh, what it is about your courseware that seems to have uh, worked and been successful in teaching kids programming.
3: I think the first part about it is there's a a very large focus on, on both fun and understanding in the courseware. A lot of times when people teach programming, you sort of go along until it's done and then things work. And there's sort of like a, an odd magic to it at that point. Like once all the pieces are in place, now look, look at what you've built. And, and along, we the, really, along
2: the way, you have to keep their attention long enough to make them believe that the payoff will be worth it.
3: Yeah. And we don't do that at all. We, we, when we, we start with recipes, which is sort of the logic, but not the code. And every line that we turn into code, we can execute, and we can see what it does, and we can see the result change. So you're constantly doing feedback, and you know what each piece does and why it affects the overall result. And when that magic goes away, it actually becomes much more interesting.
4: So a couple things that that we do in terms of methodology and what we really think that we're stumbling upon here is, is a, a method of teaching, sort of like Montessori is a method of teaching math or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what we found, and a lot of this comes from uh, Luellen's background in the Agile world, is by taking the best of adult programming techniques, things like pair programming, because we do pair the kids, um, and kind of a test-driven sort of environment. Um, we use, one of the things we use is Microsoft Small Basic, which is a, a version of Visual Basic. It's kind of like Logo with the turtle. A lot of the listeners will probably know about it. But the way that we teach it, as the Wellen was saying, is we use recipes. And we teach it in what we call an intention-driven method, which is we have one line of English, the kids translate it into one line of code, and then they run it. So they get this constant feedback. We don't have lecture. We do have very few PowerPoints, very few, you know, concepts, if you will. It's an action-based teaching. So kids get to code and see, code and see, code and see. And that's, that tends to get them excited.
1: So is, in essence, the recipes are comments? Yeah, it's the logic of
3: what you want to do. I mean, so like a simple example is if you were going to draw a square, right, you're going to go forward, say 50 pixels, turn right, go forward again, turn right, do that four times. Well, we'll start by saying that in English and giving them that and then turning into code. I mean, I've found as a programmer myself that... Almost everything I do is automation anyways, right? Like, I have to figure out what I want the computer to do, and then I program it up so the computer does it automatically. Mm -hmm.
4: So it's been really interesting because we started with Small Basic with this method, and then we took some of the other classes that um, I had authored for DigiGirls, and we we applied the method to it. An example is we were teaching um, T-SQL queries, and this one this version of the class right now is targeted for high school girls. We're gonna actually add change it so it's more flexible. But we first made it into a subject that we thought would be more interesting for high school girls, um, notably to look up hot boys in a boyfriend <laughs> database. And then we, we made Yeah, it really works. And then we made intention driven queries where you like go more selectively to find your ultimate hot boyfriend. So um, we've used that at DigiGirls, and it's been amazing the level of interest in learning T-SQL queries, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we're thinking that, you know, to be inclusive for, for both boys and girls, we were going to make a joke database or, you know, just different types of subject matter that kids are interested in.
3: I personally like a swear word database, but for some reason, they don't <laughs> want me teaching kids. <laughs> yeah.
1: I can see how that might go sideways. But it's interesting that, you know, that... My first thought when we started talking here was this: Why is this necessary? Because I remember being a ten-year-old boy and, you know, sneaking out of class and 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 staying late at the Radio Shack to get time on a computer. Right. In, but I realized that the you know girl curriculum is very different. Looking for hot boys is a very different kind of curriculum than what uh, an average <laughs> boy would write.
3: Well, also, I think like when we were kids. Like, I remember my first programming language was BASIC. Right. And it it came on my computer and it, it was just, it was really accessible. And, right. and you turned you the know, machine I remember, on it was there. Yeah. And I remember programs would, you know, like I, a lot of the first games I played, like the source code was there and changing it so I could, you know, win which was sort of a motivation to get me programming. Mm.
0: Right.
4: Well, one of the things too that we've found is by focusing on you know, interactive method and it's really visual method, you get people, you get kids who would really never have thought of programming because, you know, obviously there's stereotypes around who programs and, Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of people program and what programming is. And if you get, you know, a group of kids in a room and they're drawing basically by programming, you get this great response. You get kids that, you know, go home and we get, you know, reports from the parents that they program for five hours. Mm. You know. And these are kids that like never even considered thinking about programming. And that's when it gets really exciting. Mm. That's when we think, hey, we're on to something here.
2: Now you said you mentioned small basic. There's a couple of different things called small basic, but this is Microsoft Small Basic. And tell yeah, us a little yeah, bit about yeah. that.
4: Yeah, um, Microsoft Small Basic is a uh language and an editor. That was created by one of the guys on the visual studio team, Vijay Raji. And just as a project, because he was frustrated that there wasn't this, like Llewellyn was saying, thing on your computer that you could learn programming with. Mm -hmm. And I discovered it about a year and a half ago and started using it for DigiGirls. And um worked really, really well. And then when I started collaborating with Llewellyn, um, we just added to the way that I was using it by taking some of these Agile methods and creating recipes and chunking out the courses and having more than a one-hour presentation. We now are up to, I think, 13 or 14 recipes in our library. So you can actually take our courseware and do, for example, an after-school program. We're actually personally doing that at my daughter's school. We're doing 14 sessions an hour a week, and it's going really, really well.
2: And Small Basic is based on Logo. It's got a turtle. Is that
3: Actually, it's based on Visual Basic. Um, But one of the objects it has is a turtle. And turtle, I mean, you know, turtle is not the most cutting edge in programming, but one of the really nice things about watching a turtle program execute is the animation of it.
4: Right.
3: It's sort of like being able to visualize the debugger. You can see the individual lines execute, as opposed to a lot of programs that you just, boom, everything happened. And and you're trying again, figure out how the pieces connect.
4: Also, the IDE is just lightweight enough. It's a very, fairly small install. It runs all the way back to XP. Um, it has a little bit of IntelliSense-like help, and in then it has this pop-up wheel. It's also extensible, and this is one thing that we've liked about it. We actually have a project up on CodePlex where Lillian and I have written extensions to support the recipes, and what we've done is we've added documentation to make that uh, more discoverable, and we've also added new objects. We use the tortoise rather than the turtle because we wanted to uh, create some new objects. Or, for example, it wasn't a message box. We pulled it down from the framework. So it is nice that it's a framework-based language that's extendable.
3: Mm-hmm. And it's actually .NET. I mean, I've, when I've had problems and I've had to hack into places, I've thrown it through Reflector and, and seen what the classes are.
2: Now, I'm, I'm, while you were talking, I downloaded it and installed it. And ran it, and I'm looking at the uh, IDE here. And it, one thing I notice is that it's very simple, very clean, very non non threatening, not Visual Studio. It's everything Visual Studio isn't.
4: Yeah, that's true. One thing that is interesting and, too. I don't know if you if you notice, there's a couple kind of um, more sophisticated features than you might think. When um, you click graduate. That will move your code into um, a version of Visual Studio, into Visual Basic.net. Wow. So that's built in. And then um, you also have the ability to export. And what that does is that creates a, a web service with an endpoint so that you can then share your code. With...
3: It's almost a simplified version of version control, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's nice. We we do a lot of things where the kids are doing adult stuff. It's simpler, but it, it's not dumbed out.
1: So the, uh, I'm going back to your original example here of drawing a square and, and really digging hard on remembering basic programming concepts here because a loop is not that simple a concept to somebody who's never programmed before.
4: You know, it's great that you brought that up because the square is the first recipe that we do. Right. And again, when, when we saw over our you know, 16 live events test that basically we can teach every person who shows up how to do a for loop and like doing a for loop, we thought, hey, we should share this stuff because we've got the for loop in the very first recipe. One of the other things that we do that's sort of interesting is once our kids are done with the recipe, we do this thing called variations. In variations, we deliver orally. So what we do is we talk to the students about um, changing the code. It's a type of refactoring. And we start with just changing values, introducing variables so that the code still runs the same. But then we get into making the object look different, visually different. So what happens there is the kids really visually see, for example, in the first recipe, what the value of I in a for loop really is. Right. And we change it to a different shape.
3: Yeah, and the variation we actually change the line width to correspond to I. So the the shape gets thicker as it goes around. And like that's, I think, the point. Up until that point... They just saw for loop says, I can do something four times
1: a time. Or I can do something. Right.
3: But afterwards, they they realize, oh, in the middle, I know what time I'm at and I can do something with that.
1: You know, I'm, I'm maybe going to take a step further back here because looking at the syntax here, you know, you talked right off the bat about how everything does something. Yeah, uh, You know, move, turn right, all of those things make sense in the turtle. But a for loop seems like a more advanced concept, even though we know structurally you have to introduce it pretty early on.
3: Actually, we don't. The way we do it is we draw the line and we turn before we do the for loop. So we don't program in order. Okay. Like, we put the, the logic in order. But when we actually program it up, we always program the next line that you can visually see. And so in the case of the for loop, we don't program the for loop until we have the insides of the for loop working, so we right. can do it once.
1: Well, and this seems more like how we actually program by reflex today, right? That you don't necessarily just start at the top and write your way down. That you write a piece and you go back and you may insert some bits and, and, hmm. and so forth. and you add the for loop in later.
3: Exactly. The code sort of emerges as you you mold it.
4: Yeah, another example of this is we have a recipe where we create a bubble and we, you know, use um, we use opacity and we use some other pretty advanced concepts. And then in the variation, we change it into an array. So we have we call it the bubble wand. Then becomes an array of bubbles. And the kids really get the concept of an array when they see the one bubble becomes this kind of floating line of bubbles across. So Hmm. the visual output of Small Basic, the way we're using it. Really leads to a rapid understanding. We had um, one session where we had uh, about 25 kids, and they ranged in age from 10 to 15, 16. We went all the way from for loops up to arrays in a four-hour session. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then we heard from the parents that the kids went home and wrote more stuff with arrays. And I taught adult programming as a, a Microsoft certified trainer for you know five, six years. You know, it's it's a, a happy making thing when you see these kids come out of a one day class and they can know arrays <laughs> while you guys
2: were talking i was playing simon sorry
1: <laughs>
2: no That's no seriously the i have problem with putting
1: programming tools in front of mr Franklin. Well, he is going to use them
2: well you know of course and and uh, it was easy though you guys have a blog right uh, or small basic has a blog i should i should say i was on the small basic site and yeah. uh and the blog has you know people post their things and you know simon's the light game with the colors and all that stuff so um you basically can play it online and you what i did was i just copied the source code right into small basic and ran it and it just ran and it's
4: yeah and that's the thing about it's deceptively simple looking because it gets kids started but it has enough depth that they can write you know they can keep on going and write more fun, interactive, advanced games, and like I said, then they can graduate to, to Visual Basic too. Mm-hmm. So it's got mm-hmm. enough of a path in it that oh, it's not God. just a toy.
2: It looks a lot like Visual Basic. I mean, you have objects and properties and values, and you've got um, you know a main loop, and you have while and end while, and and if and end if, and you know if then statements and for loops, and yeah, yeah.
3: It's, it's actually saying, remarkably similar to Visual Basic.
2: Yeah.
4: One of the other things that we found in teaching that has worked really well is at the end of each hour lesson, we've written a quiz, just a really short quiz to reinforce the concept or concepts that um, we've introduced. And the way we use quizzes is a little different than a typical teacher. We don't use the quiz to like test the kid, to, you know, did you pass or fail? We use the quiz to help the kids to understand actually what they've learned so they answer uh, three to four questions, and then the output of those questions actually draws a unique shape. So the shape kind of emerges as they keep the, getting the questions right. You can we write the quiz so that you can run it after each question.
3: And it'll actually tell you pass or fail. Yeah. Each question.
4: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so um, what happens is when we teach this unit, the recipe, the variation, and the quiz, we've we've successfully gone through the whole concept in just an hour block. So again, this is the methodology we've kind of evolved to, and we're really hoping that some of the people listening will try out. One of the biggest things that we hope um, happens as a result of people listening to the show is that they'll go to the site, teachingkidsprogramming.org, try out a recipe, and you know maybe go use it in their school.
1: Yeah, isn't the ultimate goal of this, because we get emails all the time about this, is that developers are concerned that there's not a lot of new developers coming. It strikes me as this is an opportunity to do something about that.
2: Yeah, not only that, but, I mean, it's, man, I mean, jobs in this country are scarce enough, and now we have a shortage of programmers, and yeah. it's a lucrative, creative thing to get into. It's like, you know, I hate to be the, the father who says, you're going to go into engineering, you know, but, geez.
3: And I think part of the reason for that is that if you are a programmer and you love computers like the job choices between being a nice, lucratively paid developer and a teacher are really there's quite a difference
0: yeah. in, in your
3: in your career options there, and so really you know it's a very intense field. There's, it's changing all the time, and and the people who are good at it don't teach, and so I mean that was one of the things I think that started us is that we realized you know we didn't want to quit our day jobs and, and become teachers either but we were willing to take a few hours a month and put effort into it and i think it's a way you can take something that you're you're good at and use that skill to really sort of make a difference
4: one other learning that we wanted to share with the listeners was when we started we did events and we still do them but what we found has probably a bigger impact is if we find schools And we find existing programs. Like in the case of my kids' school, they had an after-school program. It was very easy. We just called and said, hey, can we do an hour a week? They said, great. We had another situation where we went and taught at a a school. They had this thing called intercession where they bring in guest teachers for a week. They said, would you guys like to come and guest teach for a week? So one of the things to pass along to people who might want to try this is instead of reinventing the wheel, just go and ask the school, do they have an after-school program? Do they have a, you know vacation type program or something and go and, and, you know, volunteer during that time. Another thing is, yeah,
3: don't try to create the event, join yeah. an existing event.
4: Yeah. Cause then you have, then you can focus on teaching the courseware rather than the logistics stuff, which is kind of a drag, the kids will just show up. And the, the other thing is try to get more than one um, developer to volunteer with you because, you know, life, you know, busy. And rather than taking on something that is difficult over a long period of time, what we've done is we have like four or five local developers, and we just switch out. You know, if somebody's busy, just somebody else goes over there and teaches a recipe. And it really is not a big um, time commitment, and it has a huge result. I mean, we have kids from these various things that we've taught that have decided they're going to, for example, I have a software company. We had when we were in the girls' middle school. One of the girls decided that she would, as her entrepreneurial project, proposed starting a software company. And oh. it was really interesting because at the girls' middle school, they give the girls laptops. And that was, they told us it was each one. And they told us that was the first time that that had ever happened after our wow. week of programming with them.
1: Wow. So how much curriculum have you guys got ready today?
4: We have 13 recipes, um, most of which have variations and quizzes. We're actually building it out um, through this school program right now. And then um, we have... Inquiries from school systems all up and down the u s. West Coast and in Europe, so um, the school systems are asking for a full year of curriculum, so we're working we're writing curriculum as fast as we can. Another thing that we're looking for is volunteers to pair program with us because we actually both pair program, and we're writing the, the courses and the quizzes and so on and so forth as we go. So right now we have enough for 13, 14 weeks
1: and And what would be a full set of curriculum?:
4: uh, one year. So but I it's, guess that would school so
1: license like 30 weeks
4: yeah yeah so we got a little ways to go <laughs>
1: well you're you're pushing on halfway anyway but not too bad
4: not too bad
2: and uh, at your at your resource here is this curriculum stuff that we can just download and use to to teach or is there any charge for it
3: uh it's free all the way both free to use free to expand you know this is one of the things that we we believe deeply that you just need to do more hmm. to help out. Like You're right. Like Jobs are scarce, and there still isn't enough programmers. And so, I mean, take it, use it. If you don't like it, add to it, make it better. Um, it's free all right.
1: Awesome. Now, there's a couple of different small basic blogs, right? I mean, it's your blog that's around uh, teaching kids programming, and it's a small basic blog.
4: Yeah, the Small Basic blog is maintained by VJ, the creator of the language, and it focuses a little bit more on more complex games, things for older kids. We've taken the specific focus for Starter. That's kind of right. our niche area. There is a very active um, news group for Small Basic as well, people using it around the world. We're trying to collaborate with as many people as we get in contact with. We've heard of people in New Zealand, people in Europe and share best practices so we don't reinvent the wheel. But basically our area is the young kids, kids just starting, and where we're putting all our stuff is teachingkidsprogramming.org, which right now redirects to my blog, but we're eventually moving all the stuff over there.
2: Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor. Embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at Datadynamics.com. Let's talk about some of the recipes. So let's say that I homeschool my kid, or let's say I don't you know let's say I want to start working with my child or another child on some programming, and I see that you have a list of recipes here what do let's talk about some of them okay. and what they any place they you wanna start in particular well, you know, I guess you start with the classic you know make the turtle go in a square and then change colors, but um some of the more interesting ones look like spirographs here,
3: yeah uh so I think the the Pentagon, crazy one, is is one of my favorite, just because in the end it draws this sort of spiraling Pentagon. And it's all different colors and it just it just looks very cool. Um.
4: Well, one, one, the way that we uh, will teach is we do teach usually from simple to complex. Although you don't have to do that, we run events different ways. One of the things that we've done in events is we've um, printed posters and put them on the wall of the um, output of the recipes, and we've literally said to kids what do you want to do? And um for example, they might say pentagon crazy which has if statements and um subs and some other things that maybe they hadn't um progressively got to, but if they're motivated to make that, well then by gosh, go ahead. So one of the the things that we've learned was Uh, Let the kids own curiosity drive. Another example is we have a Hilo game, which is very simple message boxes, you know, guess the number, so on and so forth. And one uh, group that we were with, they wanted to do the Hilo game and then they wanted to do a variation of reverse Hilo and they wanted to, they wanted to just do Hilo. So we are very flexible around the library and we've created Mm -hmm. the library to be modular. Although it is in in the small basic wiki, it's easy to hard basically is the way it's written if you just visually look at it. Um, what we found is because kids have different skill levels and different interests, if you want to work with this, you know, just usually start with a square because that's that kind of gets you started off um, on seeing where people's skill levels and interests are. Yeah. And then just kind of go where the kids want to go.
2: And I'm looking at the Small Basic blog and, and I see that there are some pretty sophisticated programs up here like Asteroids.
4: Yeah. Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> I haven't, I haven't looked at the source code. Let me take a look at the source code, but I bet it's, you know, it's not,
1: uh, yeah. How do we get curriculum to get to that?
2: Actually, We're the source
3: code it. doesn't <laughs> look all that, so you keep moving in the same direction, you know, the, the concepts that come out when you do each little recipe, right? You start learning for loops, you start learning variables, you learn events. Um, when you start putting that all together, that's how you end up with asteroids.
1: Right, but and, I mean, you got to jump away from the turtle at some point here.
3: Yes, and we get into more actually, the
1: sprite-based drawing
3: and the bubble wand, which is you know I think maybe ten or twenty down, or sorry, ten or fifteen down. Right. At that point, we're, we've moved off of the turtle. We're we're using events following the mouse movement um, and, and using actually the the shapes API to draw based on your on your location.
1: I mean, if you're looking, I guess it depends on the age of the kid, but talk about giving them a goal to strive for, to make something as visually impressive as this Asteroids game.
4: Oh, and it's just amazing what kids will do. I mean, we had a kid, like nine years old, went to the first session, just doing the square, basically, the square and maybe one, one other rescue. just a one and a half, two hour session. He went home and he wanted to write the word hello. And his mom said it took him five hours But he wrote the word hello and sent us his recipe. So, again, you capture the kid's imagination, and it's just really fun to see what they come up with. One of the things that we've done is through the extensions, we wrote this thing we call the virtual proctor, and what it does is it just captures a screenshot every time there's an execute. And then you can just dump it onto a share. Just a real simple thing, but it really helps teaching the class. And the end
3: result is you can look at one monitor and see what every kid in the class just did.
1: Oh, I see. So every time they run the app, you basically snap a copy? Yes. Yeah.
4: Yeah, And then we sometimes put that on the overhead. And so people can, um, the kids, it's like a competition when they get into the variations. Like, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. And it just becomes so fun because you've got this room full of kids, most of whom had never considered programming, and they are just coding up a storm and how do I do a nested if and blah, blah, blah. And they just really want to do it. And it's it's great it's just great and
1: no kidding it's just that's a huge jump from what you typically get from a programming so the proctor app is just on the network and get receives info from each of the other machines
3: it's actually a little bit simpler than that the there's a call on and so in the extensions we have an object called tortoise and there's a call on it called approve which comes from you know I'm an agile tester uh, so I use approval framework a lot and it literally takes the screenshot and dumps it to a file location. And and so we just create a shared drive and all these png files start showing up on it and if you just look at it in explorer in you know tile view, boom, all of a sudden you can see what everyone's doing.
1: Oh, I see. Interesting. Yeah, no very simple solution to the problem. Yeah.
2: I uh while you guys were talking, I just died at asteroids. <laughs> took me a while so that's to that's the
1: problem with having games that are too cool is the kids will play them
2: well yeah and I I also took a look at the source code and it really doesn't look that difficult I mean you know there's not a lot of, I expected it to be long and big you know a lot, lot, of, lot of code but not you know less than I thought
1: cool cool so you guys are referring to Tortoise and this is part of the CodePlex small basic extensions Yeah. And under extend small
4: Yeah, what we did is we took a look at what was in Small Basic and we decided, oh, to make a few changes. For example, we thought it was a little bit confusing to have both properties and methods, so we turned all the properties into getters and setters. Just a real simple thing um, on oh, okay. our on our just because it makes it more consistent when you're first learning. And like I said, we added objects around color. Um, we added a message box. We added things that weren't present. Um, Because we just wanted them, and they were in the framework, so we we put them in.
3: And we added some things that just made the translation to English simpler, because, you know, you really want the kids to understand things. And, And, like, so one example was on the turtle, you had to set the pin color by going to the graphics object, right? And it was just confusing. It didn't make sense why the graphics object was controlling the turtle. Oh, right. Um. So we just put a, a really simple little wrapper metal map or method on turtle, on tortoise. So you could say set pin color. It just makes sense now. So we wanted, we didn't want, cause you know, I, you know, as, as a professional developer, I don't like when I, whenever I want to read and understand the code, I need a whole bunch of comments. I want code that is sort of self-explanatory. Self-commenting. Yeah. Yeah. And frustration is, it's hard enough. As, as a developer, when you're teaching kids, frustration is, is really bad. It's a thing yeah, to be avoided. You'll
1: lose them. Exactly. Well, now that I see asteroids, I'm thinking all of a sudden these guys could be building Nintendo games. Other than the copyright issues, there's no reason <laughs> not to build a little Mario Brothers. <laughs> um, what about sound?
4: Well, it's interesting that you say that. Um, another group has actually wrote, written an extension around sounds. And, um, I know that there's some consideration for adding sounds to. And there's
3: sounds in the basic library, too.
4: Yeah, but, but even more complex sounds, like piano sounds. So you can play music. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's being looked at. Yeah. And there is extensions that you can use. That's the fun thing about, you know, having an extendable language. And that's an, another sort of invite out to the listeners there. You know, if you don't feel like teaching, it's not your thing or whatever, if you're just, you know, really want to write code. Um, write some extensions and throw them up on Codeplex because people are using Small Basic, and um, you know there's lots of stuff in the .NET framework that might be fun to have that maybe we haven't got in Small Basic. So there's lots of different things that people who want to be involved with this can do. Probably the core thing is though to teach, but there there are lots of other things.
1: And so the correct approach to this, I guess, is just contacting a school, finding out if there's an opportunity to essentially volunteer.
4: Yeah. But well, as a professional
1: we, developer, rather than as a teacher,
3: get get a friend. Right. So the, first, we we really suggest don't do it by yourself. Find someone else who's willing to teach with you, so that it's just less disruptive to your life. You know, if you have if you have an event you need to do one Wednesday, it's hard to block out like every Wednesday for the next four months. Right. But it's easy enough to do it do it with a friend.
4: And Another thing that you can do. We did this in Denmark. We got invited to teach over there is, um, you know, where it's going to be physically kind of inconvenient or impossible, train local teachers. And don't just think of developers. It was really interesting. We actually had they were Microsoft employees, but they were not programmers. They were technical, but they were not programmers. And we had these four, three women. We worked with them for two days and they co-taught the event with us in, in Danish. We taught in English and Danish. And um, now they feel comfortable teaching this stuff. So think, you know, another way to volunteer is to actually teach side-by-side side with a teacher.
1: Right, yeah. Well, because I, I think, I mean, I've I've talked to a number of teachers at the middle and high school level who are teaching programming, and boy, they need this tool. This is so much an easier tool yeah. to teach with, right?
4: Well, you know, it is interesting, because we have um, talked with the Computer Science Teachers of America, which is a national organization, and we have shown them our our stuff. In fact, when we taught in for that girls' middle school. That's where the president of the Computer Science Teachers of America teaches herself. And um, we are presenting at some academic conferences this year as well because we're really trying to get our stuff out into two communities, into the developer community and into the educator community and try to, get, try to inspire people to, to work together and give them some tools to get started with.
1: Excellent. So how do kids... That have been exposed to this. How do they take this home? Do they just go and download and install it on their own machines?
3: Exactly. Although, one of the things we found is that it's much easier because you know how whenever you want to like teach, you have to make sure all the computers are set up and stuff like that. Yes. So, so sometimes we'll, we'll put it on a flash drive so that they can just take it home with them and plug it in. And we're also working on ways to run it completely through the web. Because so yeah. we found that a lot of times, I mean, kids have remarkable access to computers nowadays. Right. But a lot of times they don't own their own
1: computer. All right.
2: So Small Basic apparently has some Silverlight extensions that allow you to run it online. Is that what yeah. I was using when I was playing Asteroids online?
4: Yes. Yeah, what it has right now is um, you can view anything that's in the core um, Small Basic DLL in a Silverlight viewer. Uh, you can view the code and the and the um the output and you can also embed that onto a web page. Um, because so many different people have done extensions, um, not all the extensions are available in the Silverlight viewer yet. We are we, well and I are working with VJ to get our extensions up there um, so that you can see our stuff. So if you try to run our stuff in the browser it'll error because our extensions aren't part of the mini CLR that come down with that yet. Um, but hopefully we can get that get that going. Um, what we would all like, sort of the dream of the future, is to have uh, this being editable in a Silverlight um, environment. Yeah. We're not there yet, but um, we've certainly been making the ask because that would be a zero install.
2: And, you know, we should also mention Kids Corner, which is where the small basic uh, page lives. This is at the yes. Beginning Developer Learning Center at MSTN and I've Shrinksterized it for you. Shrinkster.com slash 1DavidUniform6, 1DU6.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of great resources there. Um, in addition to our stuff, there's um, C Sharp for Sharp Kids and, and all kinds of language resources. So, yeah, if people are wanting to explore other um, avenues uh, beyond what we are showing, we're, we're not uh, selfish. We just want more kids involved in tech, and we want to, we want to really um, give tools to programmers and to teachers. And if we can drive them to that site, that's totally fine.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Well, you guys got any uh, last-minute things before we uh, say goodbye here that you want to mention?
4: Well, I, well, I do. I um, I just really want to encourage anyone that's listening that tries out our recipes to um, let us know, give us feedback. The easiest way to contact me is through my blog, blogs.msdn.com slash SoCalDevGal. Um, that's the quickest. I have a priority on those emails. They actually jump to the top of my inbox. I'd love to hear any feedback, positive or negative. On how useful the stuff we're producing is for you. And
3: again, just realize that if you want kids to become better programmers, if you look around and you, and, you know you're concerned that we're not producing enough, it's up to us to go and start teaching, right? And it, you're not going to be able to do this full-time job, but just do a little bit. And if everyone does a little bit, you know that's where the real change starts to happen.
2: Hmm. Excellent. Guys, thank you very much. This has been enlightening, and it's inspired me to uh, to spend some time with some of the kids in my life doing this.
3: Actually, I have one more story I wanted to tell, if, okay. if you have a moment. I did this with one kid, and his dad was there. And we were drawing the square with him, and the kid started to actually see how it worked, and you could see that he was getting excited. Mm-hmm. And the dad, he started saying, this is what I do, son. Like, this is what I do all day. And I remember looking at it and, you know, I know this guy does not program turtle graphics all day. Right, right, right. But it was like, that was the way his son could finally have some relation to what he did. What, right. you know, that identity that so much of us take into our job. Like, this was the first time the kid could actually see it. And it's really, it's kind of an amazing thing to have. So if you have your own kids, it really is quite great to do some programming with them and let them see what you love.
2: Absolutely. And with that, we'll bring the we'll bring the session to a close. Guys, thank you very much, Llewellyn and Lynn. Thank you. This is great work you're doing and keep it up. Thanks. Thanks. All right, we'll talk to you next time on.NET .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio.